Burns. One of the most common causes of pediatric injury causes over 300 ER visits and results in two deaths each day. The mechanism? Hot liquids or steam in younger children and fire in older children. But as you're well aware, management of these patients is complex. Luckily, Dr. Pramod Pulagandla, pediatric surgeon and intensivist at Montreal Children's Hospital, is here to give us the cliff notes on burn resuscitation. Before we dive into the conversation, take a minute to pause the podcast and think on a couple questions. We know you're busy, but studies show it'll help the information stick a little better. One, how do you assess the extent of a burn in children? Two, what fluids do you want to use and how do you calculate the rate? Three, how long do you wait before taking the patient to the OR for debridement? Okay, now that you've had a chance to think on it, let's keep this train moving. To set the stage, we're gonna start with a clinical scenario. So we have a two-year-old who's found at a campsite nearby, is brought into the ER with approximately a 25% total body surface area, second degree burn. First things first, when should our surgeons out there transfer a patient to a burn center? What criteria should they be looking for? So certainly the patient that you describe in the scenario needs to be transferred. But in general, we accept patients who have burns of more than 5% of their total body surface area, particularly if they involve the face, the hands, feet, genitalia, perineum, or major joints. Electrical burns, chemical burns, and inhalational injury, those definitely should be transferred. And certainly those patients who have significant circumferential burns should also be. Sometimes, depending on the level of care that is available, those patients with complex medical histories or pre-existing medical disorders may also need to be transferred. And I think most importantly, that if you suspect in any way, shape, or form that this is part of uh, non-accidental trauma, then that patient should definitely be transferred to a tertiary care center where they can provide the appropriate care to that patient. And is it similar criteria for when you decide to admit a patient? if you are the burn center? Yeah, so we're a little more, I guess, conservative or liberal, but perhaps that's maybe the better way to say it. Any infant under the age of one or a total body surface area burn of greater than 8%, any second degree burn greater than 10%, or any third degree burn greater than 5% would be indications for uh, admission. Certainly burns to the face, eyes, ears, hands, genitalia, as I mentioned uh, previously, would be important, as well as uh, in the context of polytrauma, an electrical or chemical burn, or significant comorbidities or inhalational injury. So there is quite a bit of overlap, but certainly the very small infants, uh, we tend to admit them. Okay, so back, back to this patient. If I'm at a hospital that I can't take care of him, this two-year-old, and I am planning to transfer, how should I dress this burn? How should I treat the burn? What should I do before I send him your way? The first thing is certainly to provide the patient with some adequate pain control because this can be a significant source of pain uh, for the patient. And then I would generally just apply some silver sulfadiazine and wrap the wounds uh, lightly with gauze. Sometimes I might add a little bit of Bactigras so that the gauze does not stick to the wound. And I just may also make sure that when I'm transferring patient that I can rapidly and repeatedly 
assess for distal perfusion of the feet and the toes and the hands and the fingers because mm-hmm. this is really important. We don't want to have a very tight bandage that is uh, compromising an already uh, compromised limb. Okay, so the main topic we all think of when it comes to burn is fluid resuscitation. Do you have a guideline that you follow? I know um, we've all learned about Parkland formula and we get tested on it all of the time. Do you follow that to a T? What, what is your management? So I think the Parkland formula is, is a wonderful basis for, for fluid resuscitation, but I do not believe that it adequately addresses the needs in the smaller uh, child or in the infant. It's also important to state that those patients who have smaller burns can actually be treated with oral rehydration therapy. They don't necessarily have to receive intravenous fluids. But in our center, uh, patients with greater than 10% total body surface area burns or teenagers with greater than 15% total body surface area burns are those that we do initiate in resuscitation. With respect to the type of formula that you use, it's all predicated on the accurate determination or estimation of the burned surface area. And in this context, the London Browder chart is probably the best chart to use because it takes into account the body shape variations in children and it actually provides a much more accurate estimation of the, of the body surface area. If you don't have access to that or are not familiar with it, you can always use a, the palm of the patient as an estimate of 1% body surface area burn. With respect to the Parkland formula, if you were to use that, it should be Ringer's lactate solution at 3 cc's per kilo per percentage body surface area burn. But I tend to use either the Cincinnati formula or the Gallison formula because these are much more uh, pediatric specific. The big question is, well, when do I add dextrose-containing solutions? Uh, we tend to add dextrose for any patient uh, who is under 30 kilos, and we provide that as maintenance fluids. So the resuscitation is above that. I think the other reason why I really like the Cincinnati and Gallison formulas is because within that protocol, you actually have recommendations or provisal for the use of colloids. Now, colloid uh, use has been very controversial in the past, but now I think it's becoming more accepted and both the Cincinnati uh, and the Galveston protocols uh, address that. Giving colloid has been in a, actually a, a prospective study by Dietrich to show that there is statistically less uh, fluid use overall, shorter lengths of stay, and a reduced incidence of fluid creep. What are some ways that that manifests and then uh, treatment options to help either prevent it or treat it once it has occurred? So fluid creep is basically the general phenomenon of giving too much fluid and not taking into account uh, the fluid that has been given, such as previous boluses or miscalculating the total volume. Sometimes if you find that you have given too much volume, you could judiciously give diuretics. Uh, Sometimes using colloids with diuretics may allow you to diurese a bit more. The other issues with fluid creep are not just related to the Uh, local wound issues, but certainly fluid overload can lead to respiratory compromise, making this patient very difficult to ventilate, and all of the other morbidities that are associated with that. So I think that if you've adequately fluid resuscitated the patient, then you can proceed with diuresis in a controlled fashion and potentially add some colloid as well in order to get rid of excess fluid. Awesome. Thank you. Do you always place a Foley? 
Yeah, I think a Foley is a clinical decision, certainly for those patients with extensive burns or in the context of multiple trauma or in those patients who have electrical burns where they may have uh, rhabdomyolysis, I certainly put in a Foley catheter. If they are small burns just to perhaps a hand and you're just admitting them because you're worried about the functionality of that hand, they don't, probably don't need a Foley ca a catheter and you can accurately assess urine output based on just collecting urine or weighing diapers or, or, or whatever. Can you talk about uh, the role of antibiotics and tetanus in, in the initial resuscitation phase? Certainly all patients should get at least a tetanus booster uh, if their vaccination card is not available. Um, there's no harm in that. It's probably a very, very good idea. I personally do not give antibiotics until I have a proven infection. I think, in fact, leads to the uh, development of resistant or, uh, infection with resistant organisms. So I do not give antibiotics at the outset. So I have a, another kind of simple question, but when do you check CO or carbon monoxide levels? All right, so carbon monoxide, I think in any patient where you suspect that there was a closed space fire or an inhalational injury, these are the patients that need to be checked. And it's easy enough to check this on a blood gas uh, with cooximetry where you actually can measure the methemoglobin. The classic presentation of the patient with carbon monoxide poisoning is not intuitive because you have to actually look at the blood gas in order to determine that because their saturation on your transcutaneous monitor uh, will be normal because all of their hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen. But mm -hmm. these patients will present with a low PaO2 and therefore that's how you will make that clinical connection. But again, any patient who is in a closed space or, or a fire, they should be treated as if they have carbon monoxide poisoning. I think the attention to inhalational injury is critical and that if you believe that the patient has had incurred an inhalational injury, these patients need to be intubated very quickly because once the edema sets in, it's extremely difficult to intubate these patients sometimes. Second of all, once you've intubated these patients with inhalational injury, they very likely require a bronchoscopy. The bronchoscopy is useful because it allows you to assess the extent of the airway injury, but it can also be very valuable for pulmonary toilet because often these patients will shed mucosa and have casts in their airways that could then lead to further ventilatory issues. And the last thing as well is that in the trauma bay, we talked about the clinical scenario of carbon monoxide where you have a normal saturation but your PaO2 is low. But the other thing that you have to be acutely aware of is that if a patient is desaturating and you don't have good chest rise and they do have chest burns, you need to be very vigilant with respect to whether or not you need to do an escherotomy, uh, a chest escherotomy, which would be incisions in the anterior axillary lines bilaterally and then with a sort of an oblique sort of chevron type of, in of incision that meets those two lateral incisions down to good tissue so that you are actually able to get good chest rise. Got it. Okay, so moving on along in our case, we have this two-year-old who has a 25 total body surface area, second degree burn. When do you decide to go to the operating room and how do you decide which burns need debridement? So I think what's the most important aspect here is that burns do evolve over time and therefore what may look initially as a superficial burn may actually turn into something that is second degree or, or, or partial second degree, which would then require more therapy or definitive surgical debridement and grafting. 
Uh, one of the things that's most important, however, is that you have to make sure that you've reached your resuscitation endpoints before you consider doing a surgical procedure. The endpoints that should be used is generally urine output, and that's where the Foley catheter comes in, in into play. So in young children, it should be greater than, uh, who are less than 30 kilos, it should be one cc per kilo per hour of urine output as a clinical goal. And if they're over 30 kilos, then you could accept 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour for urine output. So if you are in that stable period, and again, just to reiterate that you've given half of the fluid that you've calculated for using your Galveston or Cincinnati formula in the first eight hours and the next amount in 16 hours, and you're hemodynamically stable, that is when I would often take the patient uh, to the operating room for uh, initial e evaluation and debridement of the wounds, and then we can decide what the extent of the wounds are and then plan likely for grafting at that point. How often do you reassess for the depth of the burn in that burn progression? So my, my personal take on this is that wounds uh, should be dressed at least daily. So I actually will re, uh, reassess wounds every 24 hours for the first 48 hours. Usually during this period of time, we have continued with, with resuscitation, the patient is a bit more stable, and then I have a much better idea of what would be my initial uh, targets in terms of debridement and what uh, areas would need to be grafted. I think this is generally a pretty safe way to go. I think that if you wanted to, and if it was fairly superficial burns, you could do a very quick debridement right away uh, because these patients are unlikely to require a tremendous amount of resuscitation. And those patients can be even treated as a, on an outpatient basis with a longer acting uh, dressing that contains silver that could perhaps be changed in a week's time in the outpatient clinic. That, my friends, was burn management in brief. Here are your clinical pearls. Get an accurate assessment of extent of the burn. Use an appropriate resuscitation algorithm. Remember the need for dextrose-containing maintenance fluids in children less than 30 kilograms. Don't give too much fluid as it will set back your ability to definitively treat the wounds. Use clear clinical endpoints to guide resuscitation. Debride and graft early once the patient is hemodynamically stable. Those were some of the highlights on burn resuscitation. For a more extensive look at burn in general, listen to our full podcast with Dr. Rob Sheridan. Enjoying these podcasts? Then you should check out the Stay Current app for an even better listening experience, including the ability to skip straight to the sections or topics you want, read the key points and highlights, resume where you left off, join comments and discussions, watch videos, and much, much more. Find it in the App Store, Stay Current Pediatric Surgery. Download it today. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Alex Kassar, Alex Gibbons, and myself, Ray Hankey. Remember, knowledge should be free. <laughs>